Chapters 33 and 34 of Beautiful Joe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. Beautiful Joe by Marshall Saunders. Chapter 33 Performing Animals. A week or two after we got home, I heard the Morris boys talking about an Italian who was coming to Fairport with a troop of trained animals, and I could see for myself, whenever I went to town, great flaming pictures on the fences of monkeys sitting at tables, dogs and ponies and goats climbing ladders and rolling balls and doing various tricks. I wondered very much whether they would be able to do all those extraordinary things, but it turned out that they did. The Italian's name was Bellini, and one afternoon the whole Morris family went to see him and his animals, and when they came home, I heard them talking about it. I wish you could have been there, Joe said jack pulling up my paws to rest on his knees now listen old fellow and i'll tell you all about it first of all there was a perfect jam in the town hall i sat up in front with a lot of fellows and had a splendid view the old italian came out dressed in his best suit of clothes black broadcloth flower in his buttonhole and so on he made a fine bow and he said he was pleased to see the fine audience and he was going to show them the fine animals the finest animals in the world then he shook a little whip that he carried in his hand and he said that that whip didn't mean that was he was cruel he cracked it to show his animals when to begin and or change their tricks some boy yelled rats you do whip them sometimes and the old man made another bow and said, Certainly he whipped Zim just as these mamas whipped the naughty boys to make Zim keep still when they was noisy or stubborn. Then everybody laughed at the boy, and the Italian said the performance would begin by a grand procession of all the animals. If some lady would kindly step up to the piano and play a march, Nina Smith, you know nina joe the girl that has black eyes and wears blue ribbons and lives around the corner stepped up to the piano and banged out a fine loud march the doors at the side of the platform opened and out came the animals two by two just like noah's ark there was a pony with a monkey walking beside it and holding on to its mane and another monkey on a pony's back two monkeys hand in hand a dog with a parrot on his back a goat harnessed to a little carriage, another goat carrying a birdcage in its mouth with two canaries inside, different kinds of cats, some doves and pigeons, half a dozen white rats with red harness and dragging a little chariot with a monkey in it, and a common white gander that came in last of all and did nothing but follow one of the ponies about. The Italian spoke of the gander and said it was a stupid creature and could learn no tricks, and he only kept it on account of its affection for the pony. He had got them both on a Vermont farm, and he was looking for show animals. 
the pony's master had made a pet of him and had taught him to come whenever he whistled for him though the pony was only a stub of a creature he had a gentle disposition and every other animal on the farm liked him a gander in particular had such an admiration for him that he followed him wherever he went and if he lost him for an instant he would mount one of the knolls on the farm and stretch out his neck looking for him when he caught sight of him he gabbled with delight running to him waddled up and down beside him every little white pony put his nose down and seemed to be having a conversation with the goose if the farmer whistled for the pony and he started to run to him the gander knowing he could not keep up would seize the pony's tail in his beak and flapping his wings would get along as fast as the pony did and the pony never kicked him the italian saw that this pony would be a good one to train for the stage so he offered the farmer a large price for him and took him away oh joe i forgot to say that by this time all the animals had been sent off the stage except the pony and the gander and they stood looking at the italian while he talks i never saw anything as human in dumb animals as that pony's face he looked as if he understood every word that his master was saying. After this story was over, the Italian made another bow and then told the pony to bow. He nodded his head at the people, and they all laughed. Then the Italian asked him to favor us with a waltz, and the pony got up on his hind legs and danced. You should have seen that gander skirmishing around so as to be near the pony and yet keep out of the way of his heels we fellows just roared and we would have kept him dancing all the afternoon if the italian hadn't begged ze young gentleman not to make ze noise but let ze pony do ze rest of his tricks pony number two came on the stage and it was too queer for anything to see the things the two of them did they helped the italian on with his coat they pulled off his rubbers. They took his coat away and brought him a chair and dragged a table up to it. They brought him letters and papers and rang bells and rolled barrels and swung the Italian in a big swing and jumped a rope and walked up and down steps. They just went around that stage as handy with their teeth as two boys would be with their hands, and they seemed to understand every word their master said to them. The best trick of all was telling the time and doing questions in arithmetic. The Italian pulled his watch out of his pocket and showed it to the first pony, whose name was Diamond, and said, What time is it? The pony looked at it, then scratched four times with his forefoot on the platform. The Italian said, That's good, four o'clock, but it's a few minutes after four. How many? The pony scratched again five times. The Italian showed his watch to the audience and said it was just five minutes past four. Then he asked the pony how old he was. He scratched four times. That meant four years. He asked him how many days in a week there were, how many months in a year, and he gave him some questions in addition and subtraction, and the pony answered them all correctly. Of course, the Italian was giving him some sign, but though we watched him closely, we couldn't make out what it was. At last, he told the pony that he had been very good and had done his lessons well. If it would rest him, he might be naughty a little while. 
all of a sudden a wicked look came into the creature's eyes he turned around and kicked up his heels at his master he pushed over the table and chairs and knocked down a blackboard where he had been rubbing out figures with a sponge held in his mouth the italian pretended to be cross and said come come this won't do and he called the other pony to him and told him to take that troublesome fellow off the stage the second one nosed diamond and pushed him about finally bit him by the ear and led him squealing off the stage the gander followed gabbling as fast as he could and there was a regular roar of applause after that there were ladders brought in joe and dogs came on not thoroughbreds but curs something like you the italian says he can't teach tricks to pedigree animals as well as to scrubs those dogs jumped the ladders and climbed them and went through them and did all kinds of things the man cracked his whip once and they began twice and they did backward what they had done forward three times and they stopped and every animal dogs goats ponies and monkeys after they had finished their tricks ran up to their master and he gave them a lump of sugar they seemed fond of him and often when they weren't performing went up to him and licked his hands or his sleeve there was one boss dog joe with a head like yours bob they called him and he did all his tricks alone the italian went off the stage and the dog came on and made his bow and climbed his ladders and jumped his hurdles and went off again the audience howled for an encore and didn't he come out alone make another bow and retire i saw old judge brown wiping tears from his eyes he'd laughed so much one of the last tricks was with a goat and the Italian said it was the best of all because the goat is such a hard animal to teach. He had a big ball, and the goat got on it and rolled across the stage without getting off. He looked as nervous as a cat, shaking his old beard and trying to keep his four hoofs close enough together to keep them on the ball. We had a funny little play at the end of the performance. A monkey dressed as a lady in a white satin suit and a bonnet with a white veil came on the stage. She was Miss Green, and the dog, Bob, was going to elope with her. He was all rigged out as Mr. Smith and had on a light suit of clothes and a tall hat on the side of his head, high collar, long cuffs, and he carried a cane. He was a regular dude. He stepped up to Miss Green on his hind legs and helped her onto a pony's back. The pony galloped off the stage. Then a crowd of monkeys, chattering and wringing their hands, came on. Mr. Smith had run away with their child. They were all dressed up, too. There were the father and mother, with gray wigs and black clothes, and the young greens in bibs and tuckers. They were a queer-looking crowd. While they were going on in this way, the pony trotted back on the stage, and they all flew at him and pulled off their daughter from his back, and laughed and chattered and boxed her ears, and took off her white veil and her satin dress, and put on an old brown thing, and some of them seized the dog and kicked his hat and broke his cane and stripped his clothes off and threw them in a corner and bound his legs with cords. 
A goat came on, harnessed to a little cart, and they threw the dog in it and wheeled him around the stage a few times. Then they took him out, tied him to a hook in the wall, and the goat ran off the stage. And the monkeys ran to one side, and one of them pulled out a little revolver, pointed it at the dog, and fired, and he dropped down as if he was dead. The monkey stood looking at him, and then there was the most awful hullabaloo you ever heard. Such a barking and yelping, and half a dozen dogs rushed on the stage, and didn't they trundle those monkeys about. They nosed them, and pushed them, and shook them till they all ran away, all but Miss Green, who sat shivering in a corner. After a while, she crept up to the dead dog, pawed him a little, and didn't he jump up as much alive as any of them. Everybody in the room clapped and shouted, and then the curtain dropped and the thing was over. I wished he'd give another performance. Early in the morning, he has to go to Boston. Jack pushed my paws from his knees and went outdoors, and I began to think that I would very much like to see those performing animals. It was not yet tea time, and I would have plenty of time to take a run down to the hotel where they were staying, so I set out. It was a lovely autumn evening. The sun was going down in a haze, and it was quite warm. Earlier in the day, I had heard Mr. Morris say that this was our Indian summer and that we should soon have cold weather. Fairport was a pretty little town, and from the principal street, one could look out upon the blue water of the bay and see the island opposite, which was quite deserted now, for all the summer visitors had gone home and the island house was shut up. I was running down one of the steep side streets that led to the water when I met a heavily laden cart coming up. It must have been coming from one of the vessels, for it was full of strange-looking boxes and packages. A fine-looking nervous horse was drawing it, and he was straining at every nerve to get it up the steep hill. His driver was a burly, hard-faced man, and instead of letting his horse stop a minute to rest, he kept urging him forward. The poor horse kept looking at his master, his eyes almost starting from his head in terror. He knew that the whip was about to descend on his quivering body. And so it did, and there was no one by to interfere. No one but a woman in a ragged shawl who would have no influence with the driver. There was a very good humane society in Fairport, and none of the Teamsters dared ill-use their horses if any of the members were near. This was a quiet, out-of-the-way street with only poor houses on it, and the man probably knew that none of the members of the society would be likely to be living in them. He whipped his horse and whipped him till every lash made my heart ache, and if I had dared, I would have bitten him severely. Suddenly, there was a dull thud in the street. The horse had fallen down. The driver ran to his head, but he was quite dead. Thank God, 
said the poorly dressed woman bitterly. One more out of this world of misery. Then she turned and went down the street. I was glad for the horse. He would never be frightened or miserable again, and I went slowly on, thinking that death is the best thing that can happen to tortured animals. The Fairport Hotel was built right in the center of the town, and the shops and houses crowded quite close about it. It was a high brick building, and it was called the Fairport House. As I was running along the sidewalk, I heard someone speak to me, and looking up, I saw Charlie Montague. I had heard the Morrises say that his parents were staying at the hotel a few weeks while their house was being repaired. He had his Irish setter, Brisk, with him, and a handsome dog he was as he stood waving his silky tail in the sunlight. Charlie patted me, and then he and his dog went into the hotel. I turned into the stable yard. It was a small, choked-up place, and as I picked my way under the cabs and wagons standing in the yard, I wondered why the hotel people didn't buy some of the old houses nearby and tear them down and make a stable yard worthy of such a nice hotel. The hotel horses were just getting rubbed down after their day's work, and others were coming in. The men were talking and laughing, and there was no sign of strange animals, so I went around to the back of the yard. Here they were, in an empty cow stable, under a hayloft. There were two little ponies tied up in a stall, two goats beyond them, and dogs and monkeys in strong traveling cages. I stood in the doorway and stared at them. I was sorry for the dogs to be shut up on such a lovely evening, but I suppose their master was afraid of their getting lost or being stolen if he let them loose. They all seemed very friendly. The ponies turned around and looked at me with their gentle eyes and then went on munching their hay. I wondered very much where the gander was and went a little farther into the stable. Something white raised itself out of the brownest pony's crib, and there was the gander close up beside the open mouth of his friend. The monkeys made a jabbering noise and held on to the bars of their cage with their little black hands while they looked out at me. The dogs sniffed the air and wagged their tails and tried to put up their muzzles through the bars of their cage. I liked the dogs best, and I wanted to see the one they called Bob, so I went up quite close to them. There were two little white dogs, something like Billy, two mongrel spaniels, an Irish setter, and a brown dog asleep in the corner that I knew must be Bob. He did look a little like me, but he was not quite so ugly, for he had his ears in his tail. While I was peering through the bars at him, a man came into the stable. He noticed me first thing, but instead of driving me out, 
he spoke kindly to me in a language that i did not understand so i knew he was the italian how glad the animals were to see him the gander fluttered out of his nest the ponies pulled at their halters the dogs whined and tried to reach his hands to lick them and the monkeys chattered with delight he laughed and talked back to them in queer soft-sounding words then he took out of a bag on his arm bones for the dogs nuts and cakes for the monkeys nice juicy carrots for the ponies some green stuff for the goats and corn for the gander it was a pretty sight to see the old man feeding his pets and it made me feel quite hungry so i trotted home i had a run downtown again that evening with mr morris who went to get something from a shop for his wife he never let his boys go to town after tea so if there were errands to be done he or mrs morris went the town was bright and lively that evening and a great many people were walking about and looking into the shop windows when we came home i went into the kennel with jim and there i slept till the middle of the night then i started up and ran outside there was a distant bell ringing which we often heard in fairport and which always meant fire end of chapter 33 performing animals chapter 34 a fire in fairport i had several times run to a fire with the boys and knew that there was always a great noise and excitement there was a light in the house so i knew that somebody was getting up i don't think indeed i know for they were good boys that they ever wanted anybody to lose property but they did enjoy seeing a blaze and one of their greatest delights when there hadn't been a fire for some time was to build a bonfire in the garden jim and i ran around to the front of the house and waited in a few minutes someone came rattling at the front door and i was sure it was jack but it was mr morris and without a word to us he set off almost running toward the town we followed after him and as we hurried along other men ran out from the houses along the streets and either joined him or dashed ahead they seemed to have dressed in a hurry and were thrusting their arms in their coats and buttoning themselves up as they went some of them had hats and some of them had none and they all had their faces toward the great red light that got brighter and brighter ahead of us where's the fire they shouted to each other don't know afraid it's the hotel or the town hall it's such a blaze hope not how's the water supply now bad time for a fire it was the hotel we saw that as soon as we got on to the main street 
there were people all about and a great noise and confusion and smoke and blackness and up above bright tongues of flame were leaping against the sky jim and i kept close to mr morris's heels as he pushed his way among the crowd when we got nearer the burning building we saw men carrying ladders and axes and others were shouting directions and rushing out of the hotel carrying boxes and bundles and furniture in their arms from the windows above came a steady stream of articles thrown among the crowd a mirror struck mr morris on the arm and a whole package of clothes fell on his head and almost smothered him but he brushed them aside and scarcely noticed them there was something the matter with mr morris i knew by the worried sound of his voice when he spoke to any one i could not see his face though it was as light as day about us for we had got jammed in the crowd and if i had not kept between his feet i should have been trodden to death jim being larger than i was had got separated from us presently mr morris raised his voice above the uproar and called is everyone out of the hotel a voice shouted back i'm going up to see it's jim watson the fireman cried someone near he's risking his life to go into that pit of flame don't go watson i don't think that brave fireman paid any attention to this warning for an instant later the same voice said he's planting his ladder against the third story he's bound to go he'll not get any farther than the second anyway where are the montagues shouted mr morris has anyone seen the montagues mr morris mr morris said a frightened young voice and charles montague pressed through the people to us where's papa i don't know where did you leave him said mr morris taking his hand and drawing him closer to him i was sleeping in his room said the boy and a man knocked at the door and said hotel on fire five minutes to dress and get out and papa told me to put on my clothes and go downstairs and he ran up to mamma where was she asked mr morris quickly on the fourth flat she and her maid blanche were up there you know mamma hasn't been well and couldn't sleep and our room was so noisy that she moved upstairs where it was quiet mr morris gave a kind of groan oh i'm so hot and there's such a dreadful noise said the little boy bursting into tears and i want mamma mr morris soothed him the best he could and drew him a little to the edge of the crowd while he was doing this there was a piercing cry i could not see the person making it but i knew it was the italian's voice he was screaming in broken english that the fire was spreading to the stables and his animals would be burned would no one help him to get his animals out there was a great deal of confused language some voices shouted 
Look after the people first. Let the animals go. And the others said, For shame, get the horses out. But no one seemed to do anything, for the Italian went on crying for help. I heard a number of people who were standing near us say that it had just been found out that several persons who had been sleeping in the top of the hotel had not got out. They said that at one of the top windows, a poor housemaid was shrieking for help. Here in the street, we could see no one at the upper windows, for the smoke was pouring from them. The air was very hot and heavy, and I didn't wonder that Charlie Montague felt ill. He would have fallen on the ground if Mr. Morris hadn't taken him in his arms and carried him out of the crowd. He put him down on the brick sidewalk and unfastened his little shirt and left me to watch him while he held his hands under a leak in a hose that was fastened to a hydrant near us. He got enough water to dash on Charlie's face and breast, and then, seeing that the boy was reviving, he sat down on the curbstone and took him on his knee. Charlie lay in his arms and moaned. He was a delicate boy, and he could not stand rough usage as the Morris boys could. Mr. Morris was terribly uneasy. His face was deathly white, and he shuddered whenever there was a cry from the burning building. Poor souls, God help them. Oh, this is awful, he said, and then he turned his eyes from the great sheets of flame and strained the little boy to his breast. At last, there were wild shrieks that I knew came from no human throats. The fire must have reached the horses. Mr. Morris sprang up, then sank back again. He wanted to go, yet he could be of no use. There were hundreds of men standing about, but the fire had spread so rapidly, and they had so little water to put on it, that there was very little they could do. I wondered whether I could do anything for the poor animals. I was not afraid of fire, as most dogs, for one of the tricks that the Morris boys had taught me was to put out a fire with my paws. They would throw a piece of lighted paper on the floor, and I would crush it with my forepaws, and if the blaze was too large for that, I would drag a bit of old carpet over it and jump on it. I left Mr. Morris and ran around the corner of the street to the back of the hotel. It was not burned as much here as in the front, and in the houses all around, people were out on their roofs with wet blankets, and some were standing at the windows watching the fire or packing up their belongings ready to move if it should spread to them. There was a narrow lane running up a short distance toward the hotel, and I started to go up this, when in front of me I heard such a wailing, piercing noise that it made me shudder and stand still. The Italian's animals were going to be burned up, and they were calling to their master to come let them out. 
Their voices sounded like the voices of children in mortal pain. I could not stand it. I was seized with such an awful horror of the fire that I turned and ran, feeling so thankful that I was not in it. As I got into the street, I stumbled over something. It was a large bird, a parrot, and at first I thought it was Bella. Then I remembered hearing Jack say that the Italian had a parrot. It was not dead, but seemed stupid with the smoke. I seized it in my mouth and ran and laid it at Mr. Morris's feet. He wrapped it in his handkerchief and laid it beside him. I sat and trembled and did not leave him again. I shall never forget that dreadful night. It seemed as if we were there for hours, but in reality it was only a short time. The hotel soon got to be all red flames, and there was very little smoke. The inside of the building had burned away, and nothing more could be gotten out. The firemen and all the people drew back, and there was no noise. Everybody stood gazing silently at the flames. A man stepped quietly up to Mr. Morris, and looking at him, I saw it was Mr. Montague. He was usually a well-dressed man with a kind face and a head of thick, grayish-brown hair. Now his face was black and grimy, his hair was burnt from the front of his head, and his clothes were half torn from his back. Mr. Morris sprang up when he saw him and said, Where is your wife? The gentleman did not say a word, but pointed to the burning building. Impossible, cried Mr. Morris. Is there no mistake, your beautiful young wife, Montague? Can it be so? Mr. Morris was trembling from head to foot. It is true, said Mr. Montague quietly. Give me the boy. Charlie had fainted again, and his father took him in his arms and turned away. Montague, cried Mr. Morris, my heart is sore for you. Can I do nothing? No, thank you, said the gentleman without turning around, but there was more anguish in his voice than in Mr. Morris's, and though I'm only a dog, I knew that his heart was breaking. End of chapter 34, A Fire in Fairport